Would you indulge me for two seconds just Please. to say something about Clarence Thomas? Oh, yes. <laughs> Clerk? Okay. Oh, I mean, my email and whatever else, social media is exploding about that piece wow. that I did about Clarence Thomas. It is an amazing law piece, clerk. I He's have picked to as say. a law clerk, a young woman <laughs> who's infamous for having been accused by everybody she worked with of sending texts that say, I hate black people. Yeah. Like, F them all. And instead of acknowledging it or ever apologizing for it, somehow this cockeyed story has been built up that she never said it, even though I've got screenshots of the text. It's which incredible. Is, and, and it's very you know, simple. Anyway. We are being trolled by a, <laughs> by a Supreme Court of justice. Of the United States. By a Supreme Court so justice good. and You're the right. Chief Justice of the 11th Circuit, Bill Pryor. There's a theme here, which is this idea of trying to gaslight and rewrite history in sort of bald face, just right in front of people. That's the attempt here. That's the strategy. I mean, it's really, uh, it's a version of trying to say, I didn't lose the election. Yeah, For them you're to... so right, Evan. And they think people aren't going to notice. They it's can amazing. do it with impunity. I don't know. It seems like it's been contagious. Not you, a good You don't sign. think that the party of the martyrs of January 6th will be offended <laughs> by <laughs> Oh, man. Welcome to The Political Scene, a weekly discussion about the big questions in American politics. I'm Jane Mayer with laryngitis, I apologize, and I'm joined by my colleagues Susan Glasser and Evan Osnos. Hi, Susan. Hi, Evan. Hi, Jane. Hey there. Great to be with you guys. So before we get into the heart of the show, Evan, you just finished an amazing piece for the magazine about President Biden. You're going to talk about it with David Remnick, and listeners can find that interview by subscribing to the New Yorker Radio Hour wherever you listen to podcasts. Also, the piece will be online, and Remnick's interview will be on our podcast feed on Monday. But um, can we have, like, a little preview of it? <laughs> um, what were the big so questions in America? As long as you promise not to tell anybody. Are, yeah. Are we, yeah. Shh. Um, <laughs> what were the big questions in American politics that you were trying to answer? You know, honestly, at the core of it, guys, I was trying to understand why is Joe Biden running again? Why is he running again? I mean, it, it's it's in some ways, it's the most fundamental question of any campaign because – If people can or cannot answer that question, it comes across to the voter on some gut level. And I wanted to understand what combination of factors was driving him to do this. And in his case, he has been in his entire life, not just professionally, but personally, he has had this habit of mind of doing what he calls gaming it out which is inside his mind, he says, look, I know that you people don't think I can do this thing, but I see a way through. He did it as a little kid. You know, his story of himself as a kid who could defy the bullies by being fast or willing to take risks. Those kinds of qualities stay with a person throughout their life. And it's very much a part of how he explains where he's gotten in life. And you can't understand this very controversial decision to to run for a second term without understanding how he sees himself from the inside out. Well, I mean, it is a risk. Uh, that's for sure. You know, I think when you're making these decisions and you're trying to separate your personal feelings from your from your strategic calculations, that's always part of the job. And um, I think they are very closely fused in this matter. Well, I think it's amazing you got an interview that that brings out 
the president's thinking in such sort of intimate ways. Hmm. So um, anyway, well. um, I guess we're we're going to be talking plenty more about Biden on episodes to come. But um, we've got Super Tuesday just around the corner. Well, not so Super Tuesday, really, uh, the way <laughs> this uh, election year is playing out, right, Jane? <laughs> uh, so it seems. So we've already been through a number of the primaries. We've been through Michigan just recently, this this earlier this week. Um, what have we learned, do you think, so far from the primaries? What do you what do you guys what's your takeaway about where we are in this election, what we've learned, and what's around the corner? I mean, sadly, what we've learned is like wake up America, Donald Trump and Joe Biden are the candidates. And, you know, this has been this the most attenuated and sort of frankly, unengaging and uninteresting primary season, I'm sure any of us can remember. Uh, Really, it's the death of meaningful competition in the primaries at a time when Americans from both the right and the left, you know, there's an unease, right? If there's one thing that Americans agree this election year is that they don't want to have these two candidates. And yet, Has that led to a very competitive Republican race? No. Uh, In fact, the story of the Republican primaries is the story of Donald Trump's extraordinary dominance. It is a story of how opposition uh, has crumbled, faded, uh, disappeared. I do think it has helped us understand and illuminate, well, how big is the size of the kind of disaffected Republican vote, some combination of never Trumper and no more Trumper vote. And, you know, it's not insignificant. We can talk about what that means for the general election. It's not insignificant, Jane, in Michigan, in South Carolina, which, by the way, was only earlier this week as well. It's been a long week. Uh, There's, I don't know if you want to call it 25 to 35 percent, you know, they're really not going to support Donald Trump uh, of Republicans. And Nikki Haley has uh, shown both what the size of that vote is, but also the the limits of it. On Biden, we can talk about that as well. But basically, I don't know, Jane, it's it's really frustrating because it doesn't feel like we're getting a real electoral process, does it? It doesn't feel like, you know, there's no debates, nobody's, you know, we're not having a, a conversation as we're used to unfolding every four years. Instead, we have these sort of series of weird coronations mm. of... Donald Trump. I mean, Evan, what did you take from Michigan where you've got like um, uh, 13 percent of the vote? That's right. Among the Democrats was uncommitted, uncommitted instead of for Biden. You know, I I look at this process and I think that so far the big the big loser here is the primary system. It is clearly failing us. This is it. And what's fascinating is that the primary system, I mean, it's just a chaotic process this year. You've got New Hampshire Democrats holding their primary, even though the the National Party has decided that they shouldn't be first. You've got the Iowa caucuses being so lopsided that they're called even before a lot of the votes have been cast. You've got, all, and then you've got in Michigan this process in which many people are registering their discontent by voting uncommitted. The system itself, and this I think, more, if you step back, applies broadly to our politics right now. 
it feels as if it's running on very antiquated technology. It's just not really keeping up with really the energy that voters themselves have about the issues that are facing this country. There's a strange disconnect right now where you have this period of in, of really intense engagement on a personal basis, the way people feel about abortion access being taken away, the way young people feel about issues like climate, about Gaza. And then you have this political machinery that is really incapable of doing its job, which is to take in the will of the public, and translate it into policy and competition. It's just failing us. I mean, and it starts, as as you're both just saying, with the two leading candidates, which poll after poll shows people are just not excited about. I mean, they really did not want a rematch of this particular race. And here we are sort of stuck with it. And I just, I wonder... You know, what are what are the threats from that in terms of third parties popping up Mm. and maybe um, becoming spoilers of, you know, in this election? What What do you think? Well, you know, I ran into a former Democratic senator the other day. And of course, you know, everybody, that's what they're talking about now. And I thought his view of this was pretty right on the mark. This is a competitive election in which most states aren't competitive, right? That's the the world we live in. Michigan happens to be one of those competitive states, which is why people are paying so much attention to this uncommitted vote. But, you know, essentially the playing field here, six or seven states, the ones that decided it in 2016, that was Michigan, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin. You add those states plus Arizona and Georgia. Those were the ones that Biden flipped in 2020. This senator said to me the other day, he said, you know, forget everything else here. He believes that, and I think many Democrats I've talked to do, that Georgia's gone for the Democrats uh, for right now, that Arizona seems to be slipping away, which means that it once again comes down to three states, Michigan, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin. And his point to your question, Jane, was watch who gets on the ballot in those states. Will there be third-party candidates in those particular states? In other words, you know, there's a, a kind of a national conversation about the role that RFK Jr. could play in the race. But more to the point here, what role can he play in Wisconsin and Michigan? I think you, when you look at third parties historically, it's a fascinating process because basically if voters think that the result is preordained, if they think that one side is so clearly going to win, like in 2016 when it was assumed that Hillary Clinton was going to win, you had this big third party vote. Same thing in previous races where it looks lopsided or misperceived as lopsided. That is a that is a it can be a decisive effect. And so part of the challenge for the Biden campaign, and it's really a, a vital one for Democrats, is to project clearly the message that there there is no such thing from their perspective as a protest vote this time. Because if you do it, you are in their mind taking a side. That's how you heard them describing it in Michigan. Gretchen Whitmer and others were saying that. And I don't know if that's going to land with people or if they're going to say, well, sorry, you gave us two two choices that we don't want. So we're going to go outside. Look, I mean, I, thought, I was just going to say, I thought I thought one of the most worrisome quotes that I saw about Michigan was from Andy Levin, Mm. who used to be the congressman, a Democratic congressman from Michigan. And he said that Biden can't win the presidency, can't can't get reelected without Michigan, as far as he can tell, and that he can't win Michigan if he continues to lose 13 percent of the Democratic vote to the uncommitted. Basically, that it's not even a third party threat. The threat is staying home. But I do want to say it's 
worth reminding ourselves here, Nikki Haley got 26 percent of the Republican vote. There are a lot of Republicans who are not happy about Donald Trump. I, I do think we always have to make sure that we remind ourselves that is a meaningful fact here. All right, let's take a break. The political scene from The New Yorker will be right back in just a moment. Hi, I'm Lauren Good. I'm a senior writer at Wired, and I'm co-host of Wired's Gadget Lab, along with Michael Calore. Each week on Gadget Lab, we tackle the biggest questions in the world of technology with reporters from inside the Wired newsroom. We cover everything from personal tech. Because asking people to put a computer on one of the most personal and sensitive parts of your body is just like, it's a big bet. Broader trends in Silicon Valley. There are just so many laid off workers out there that workers just don't have a lot of power. And the exciting and terrifying world of AI. It's inevitable that the internet is going to be filled with like AI generated nonsense. And so he just thinks he might as well make some money playing a small part in a thing that he sees as unstoppable. Wired's Gadget Lab is here to keep you informed and to keep it real. The entire point of the phone should be on some level to hate it. (laughs) (laughs) New episodes of Gadget Lab are available weekly wherever you get your podcasts. All right, we're back. Evan, I want to look at this question of the effects of the war in Gaza on the Biden campaign. I mean, I think what you're both describing is a system that seems like it's kind of frozen in dysfunction and not responding to what Mm -hmm. voters want and see and are concerned about. And as you say, there's a disconnect. But, you know, you've just spent a whole lot of time with Biden. Yeah. I mean, how concerned are they about the Israeli-Gaza war? Um, and and do they see some way out? Yeah, that, that's, that stands out, actually, as something that they are very concerned about in the sense that there are other things that they're not as concerned about. Um, you know, I think that they, they, to a degree that can surprise you, they are quite um, dismissive of a lot of polls that put them in very bad shape. But when it comes to Gaza, you saw them send people from the White House to Michigan to do a, in effect, a a, a semi-public apology. And that's because they recognize that that is, that and the border are areas of uh, tremendous vulnerability. Susan, what do you think? I have to say that uh, I cannot recall a time when a White House would send uh, senior national security officials, including a deputy national security advisor, to a swing state in the middle of an election campaign to make an argument like that. I mean, it showed a real uh, level of concern that I haven't seen up until then from the Biden White House. What we've also seen over the last week in particular is a real distancing, an effort to distance from the Netanyahu government in Israel. And, uh, you know, now they're actually talking about literally running an airlift uh, in which they would drop uh, humanitarian assistance into Gaza. That is not only a direct uh, rebuke and acknowledgement that what's happening right now isn't working, but it's also marks the failure of the inside play. Joe Biden's strategy in uh, Israel was essentially the bear hug from the very beginning, be very publicly supportive of Israel in order, uh, so the thinking went, to you know, kind of maintain your ability to leverage things on the inside with Netanyahu. That was the concept, and it fit very much with Biden's decades of support, public support for Israel. But right now we're seeing the limits of that. Netanyahu basically isn't listening. 
He isn't listening. And I think that means a terrible political dilemma for the president because, in effect, he owns a policy that he really can't control. So I, I think it's it's a big mess in Michigan. But I also I have to say that uh, Evan is right to bring us back to this issue of the Republicans, because I also found uh, the continued level of support for Haley. It's not high. It's not enough to win any races. It certainly establishes Trump's overwhelming dominance of the Republican Party. But this is why Biden is running for re-election, because he believes there's a ceiling for Trump's support, that he cannot get any new supporters. Mm. If you look at these battleground polls, there were some very alarming new surveys that came out from Bloomberg just yesterday, showed that uh, Trump had a lead, a significant lead in every single battleground state. However, I was looking at the top line number for Trump. It's basically 49 percent in every single state. And so Biden is way underperforming, right? He's like, you know, nowhere near even the level of Democratic support in those states. He's like in the low 40s. But Trump is stuck at 49. What do you what do you think about that? I mean, it's in some ways it's been the story of Donald Trump since 20, more or less 2017. I mean, that's like this man got into office by this strange combination of electoral circumstances. You had an unpopular Democrat and you had this combination of Midwestern states that he was able to win for the first time in a long time. Ever since then, it hasn't worked. The formula was like, you know, he hit the mark once. And ever since 2018, 2020, 2022, 2023, it hasn't worked for Republicans. And I think Nikki Haley, it's kind of fascinating. Ross Perot got 19 percent of the vote as a as a third party spoiler back in 1992. And in a strange way, she's playing the same role to Donald Trump that Ross Perot played to George H.W. Bush, pointing out the flaws ultimately in the Republican dominant message. And um, there are I was struck going out on, you know, talking to a lot of voters recently about what they see, there's a lot of people who find Nikki Haley appealing. And it's not just Republicans. I talk to a lot of Democrats who feel that way. Yeah, and oh, polls, she would lead. She leads by an even bigger margin than Trump leads over Biden right now. I mean, I don't know how long she can stay in. But, yeah. with, but, but I, I thought if you look at the numbers in South Carolina, there was also an interesting message because look at, look at who voted for her. And within the Republican Party, Trump's got overwhelmingly the support of the non-college educated white, mostly male, over 65. And she took the better educated, higher income Republicans. And the big question is where they're going to go. Yeah, the problem for Haley is that uh, that is no longer the center of gravity of the Republican Party. So as a practical matter, as a Republican, it's not a great recipe for a future in the party. The problem is, I do think it's interesting to hear Evan talk about kind of the Biden world and their, you know, consistently just I don't know if they're ignoring polls that show them losing or just, you know, in a way dismissing them. And that is, I have to say, that's one of my big fears, because back in 2016, I lived this. We all lived this. You know, Democrats looked at surveys that showed the race was much closer than they believed it to be. They saw, uh, you know, numbers with Trump creeping up. They they essentially couldn't process something that was so outside the narrative of the campaign that they believe for themselves. And whether you think that actual numbers are literally correct, you know, like it's two points or four points. The idea that all major national surveys, both nationally and in key battleground states, are incorrect right now, I 
I think you have to consider that Donald Trump right now is 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 a slate favorite to win the election. Yeah, I think it, it, this really did strike me. I have to say, Susan, that you know, one after another, uh, Biden's advisors made the case to me that the polls are, um, as one person, one of them put it, broken. Polling is broken. And their view is, and we know some of this sort of on a broad gauge, yes, it's much harder to get people on the phone than it, than it used to be. Uh, but they look at these last few years, and as Jennifer O'Malley Dillon said to me, she's uh, a, a very influential advisor now at the campaign, she said, uh, historically, favorability, meaning essentially favorability polls, uh, was correlated with vote choice. It sounds technical, but it was an important fact that if that what people did in the privacy of the voting booth tended to correlate to how they talked to pollsters beforehand. She said, I don't think that's the case anymore. They say, look at 22, look at 23. We don't think that the that the technology of polling is really telling us what people are going to do. I have to say, I, having a theory of the case that happens to involve dismissing all all evidence uh, to the contrary is 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 a very risky bet. You said this insight from your reporting with Biden, which I think is a really important insight, which is that. We might not think of him as a risk taker because he right now represents kind of the party of governance and, you know, kind of America the way it used to be and things like that. But to uh, say, well, okay, fine, I'm old, but in the end, that's not really going to matter. It is a very risky bet when we're talking about the polls or these primaries. To me, it comes right back to that, which is when you see Biden underperforming in these surveys, it's because Democrats are still the cats who won't be herded. <laughs> and they do not, they are not on board. Listen, let's take a break. And when we come back, we're going to look at what might be Trump's biggest challenge in the race, Biden's biggest asset, their war chests. <laughs> Let's turn to one of the subjects that I think is never to lose sight of, which is the money in politics. Um, one of the things that's sort of surprising is Biden is really outraising Trump. Trump came out of um, 2020 with a gigantic war chest, and and he's you know a master at marketing himself and getting small donors. But Biden's actually got quite a bit more money. So Susan, what do you think? How how's the political money operating in these primaries? Well, look, let's let's step back for a second here and say that uh, Donald Trump uh, is raising a lot of money, but he's also spending a tremendous amount of money not on politics, but on himself. And I think that is going to be when you look at what this campaign is going to go into the history books for. Uh, I think actually the the money piece of it is remarkable. Tens of millions of dollars, even last year in 2023, spent, raised and spent by Donald Trump in this whole web of Republican associated super PACs in order to run a campaign and also run a legal defense. And by the way, how is it not illegal for Donald Trump to raise millions and millions of dollars mm. in the name of running a campaign that all goes to his personal benefit? Because in the end, you know, having other people pay for your legal defense is a personal benefit. It seems to me an extraordinary abuse at a minimum of our campaign finance system that's occurring in real time before all of our eyes. And, you know, people just it's like another Donald Trump outrage. They just shrug their shoulders. But that 
the final point I want to make is that it goes to, I think, one of the biggest stories of the week, which is we're talking about the primaries. And sure, Donald Trump won the South Carolina primary, he won the Michigan primary, but the bigger primary that he won this week, unfortunately, is the Supreme Court primary. Mm. And I'm really worried about it, guys, and I, I want to know what you think, but I feel like this is one of the biggest days in our campaign so far this year, when the Supreme Court decided, in effect, that we're probably not going to have a, a, a trial and a ruling uh, from a jury in the case, uh, the federal case against Donald Trump for his actions in seeking to overturn the 2020 election. I, I feel like it's practically a kind of game over moment for our democracy, what the Supreme Court did this week. Well, I don't, I mean, I agree that it was a tremendous gift to Donald Trump. What they've done is they've allowed him to play out the whole schedule. I don't agree that it necessarily means there won't be a trial. I mean, I've been looking at a lot of legal experts and seeing what they say, and they're they're divided on this. I mean, it's certainly true. It's going to jam up the calendar. It's possible that they could have a trial in June, July, maybe even September. And if it's in September... I mean, honestly, I think that that may play to Trump's advantage just to say that he's being persecuted in that way. And I think that there may be a lot of reluctance on the part of the Justice Department to move forward. The idea that there could even be a trial starting in June, I don't see that. I mean, I mean so court, they're going to, it's, just but, for the listeners, they're going to not even have the arguments in the Supreme Court case on presidential immunity until the end of April. If the Supreme Court takes the time that they normally take, the end of their term is the end of June. That would be likely when we would expect a decision in that. The trial clock, as I understand it, was stopped with 88 days uh, before a trial was going to start. That's when, you know, Judge Chutkin uh, had to put the stay in effect in order to begin this other case on presidential immunity. Even if you so if you say that a decision comes out in the end of June, let's just say the Supreme Court rules on behalf of the Justice Department. Yes, absolutely. The trial can go forward. We don't have a czar in this country, but we have a president. Okay, so let me explain that. I mean, from what I have read and, and history has shown us that the Supreme Court can move incredibly quickly when it wants to. We have seen them move in a matter of days in Bush v. Gore. We've seen in the Watergate case, they moved really fast. That's why this is um, so crazy yeah, that they took till April. But, but they don't have to just have a drawn-out trial and a decision that takes place in June. They could have a decision much earlier than that. They, could de- they definitely have that possibility. And in fact, there's even, I've seen one scholar say, there's a way the uh, liberals on the court could jam it mm. and push it faster, which is they could come up with a decision fast and demand that they put it out even That's and not wait not wait for the conservatives to have their their whatever kinds of dissents that they might have. Hope springs you, eternal. Well, there, there are a lot of tricks in this book. And but you don't think that it's a signal them. from the Supreme Court that it took them two weeks even to decide to take the case and that when they did so, even though the case had already been briefed, I mean, that they decided on an a schedule of oral arguments that would not even take place until the end of April. In the Watergate case, it's interesting, we went back and looked at this, there were only 39 days from the district court action to the Supreme Court right. taking it. In this case, that we've already elongated that by a, a factor of months. Wasn't that a signal from the court? I mean, my guess is what we're looking at is some kind of behind-the-scenes compromise between the, the conservative supermajority and the liberals on the court who have 
a weekend to play. And so this is the best deal that the liberals could probably get somehow. But I I mean, I think that what the court is doing is, is operating as if this is just any other case. They're trying to pretend mm. that, this, that, that the whole sort of future of, of the election doesn't hang in their hands. They don't really want it to hang in their hands. And I think that public pressure is actually something that affects the court. And if there is a huge amount of blowback on this, I think they will feel it. Historically, they they do feel it when there is a big public pushback. So that if Democrats are smart, they will push really hard. Mm. So in a sense, what you're saying is that the court has become now uh, another and essentially a co-equal branch of this election. It's become a part of this process, and Democrats, you're likely to hear more about it from them. I think it was expect. always going to be this. It was always going to end in the Supreme Court. And I mean, and, and but the problem so. is it's not going to end. And that's what's a great tragedy, I think, uh, for 2024, is that, you know, I mean, I, I appreciate the, the scenario here that you've outlined, but I, it seems to me highly unrealistic that we're going to have anything other than uh, the New York uh, case that is very likely to go to trial. We're, we're waiting for decisions from the judge in Florida on the classified documents case. Uh, uh, but I think we're looking at a situation where a best case scenario for prosecutors is an ongoing trial, uh, certainly not one uh, that's likely to have been wrapped up with a big bow in advance of November. And that's just an extraordinary disservice. I've said it all along. I can't believe that the Justice Department and the attorney general waited so long and were so dilatory in their investigation of uh, Trump that it was allowed to converge with this election year, inherently undermined the independence and neutrality of our justice system, causing all sorts of potential conflicts. Donald Trump loves nothing more than to run out the clock on the playbook. And so, you know, for me, that's the primary this year. Sadly, it's not about voters as much as it is about, uh, you know, Supreme Court justices and district judges. And, um, you know, but, I mean, to arrive at saying game over, you have to then have thought that the only way that Trump could be defeated is in a court. And mm. and it's it you know I don't know if you if we're really I, I, no 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 Jane to just to be clear there yeah. are millions of voters who say who might be decisive in the election who say that they're supporting Trump but they might not do so if he were convicted I've seen of that a I know but does that mean that it's over and Biden's defeated if 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 no. if. If, uh, no, if I, no, I don't think Democrats. I don't think we really know that. Well, there's, I do think yeah. it's game over for those prosecutions if Donald Trump wins re-election. The I first totally thing he will do is that. shut it down. It's, I totally And it's agree. also game over for yeah. our democracy because this is wrong. It is wrong for a former president who is literally accused of the gravest kind of sin you could imagine against our Constitution. It is wrong for him to run again for office in which he is, uh, if not the favorite, certainly has even odds of winning. <laughs> without the American people having the benefit of a, a, a court I want decision to say, on it. That's while, wrong. While we're laying blame, and I do think, I mean, you definitely called it early on Merrick Garland in the Justice Department taking too long, and it's absolutely true. But I think another dynamic we shouldn't let slip in the week when, when Mitch McConnell is retiring as yes. leader mm. of the Gosh, Republicans it's been a big week, hasn't it? Yeah, <laughs> is that... Probably, I think the most fateful decision mm. was his decision not to impeach, not to lead 
do everything he could to impeach Donald Trump. Well, if you go back even further, you could say his decision to not allow (laughs) Democrats to appoint a member of the Supreme Court would also be a fateful day. This is absolutely true. But I actually see a through line through some of the things we've just been talking about, which is that I can tell you with confidence that Democrats are going to make a case that this is a period in which Republicans have gone after your freedoms in one form or another. They took away your freedom over your own body when they took away access to abortion. And now they are taking away, in effect, your freedom to have a real vote in this matter. If the Supreme Court weighs in in a way that clearly impacts the outcome of this election or that impacts uh, the ability for voters to get a decision in these cases of extraordinary consequence before they have to go to the ballot box. This is an opportunity for Democrats to say very, very clearly, this is a movement in the opposite direction from the spirit of American freedom and governance. And it's an interesting thing because freedom, after all, has been this very prized possession on the right in the language of the conservative movement. Democrats have a pretty strong claim to it right now. Uh, and and I think that's one of the messages you're going to hear more and more, particularly if the, if the court ways in to take away the freedom to have a real election here. It's a difficult thing that a win on a concept like freedom in the face of fear-mongering on something like immigration and the border. And I I mean, it, it'll be very interesting to see. I mean, obviously, we will be f- with you every week <laughs> following this. And so, um, anyway, listen, thank you so much. This has been The Political Scene from The New Yorker. I'm Jane Mayer. If you have thoughts on the show or questions, please send them to the mail at newyorker.com. And don't forget to include The Political Scene in the subject line. We had production assistance today from Alex D'Elia, Dan Richards, and Stephanie Kariuki. Stephen Valentino is our executive producer. Condé Nast's head of global audio is Chris Bannon. And our theme music is by Allison Layton Brown. And we'll be back next week. Thanks for listening.